In our ninth session on Foundations of Christian Hedonism, we present an eighth argument for the point that we made in our first session to the effect that Christian Hedonism affirms, and we believe it's true, that it is the God-given duty of all people to pursue fullest and longest pleasure, namely, pleasure in God. And we believe that it is taught in 1611 of the psalm, you make known to me the path of life. That path of life, we believe, is a duty. It leads to God, but it leads to God in a particular sense. In your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that true? Is it a duty to get on this path and pursue this fullest and longest joy? And the argument number eight is this. Though we don't pursue suffering, yet when love calls for it, we should pursue joy. We should. There's the duty. We should pursue joy in God through the suffering. Through it as an instrument of the joy. That is, suffering actually serves greater joy, we will see. And through it temporally, if we can just get through this to the other side, to show the reason we pursue joy in God through the suffering is to show that the treasure of God and the promises of reward in His presence beyond the suffering are more precious to us than all that we lose through suffering. So, Father, as we look at these texts that support this eighth argument, grant that this perhaps hardest of all dimensions of Christian hedonism would be seen as true and beautiful, and your grace would be sufficient in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to move through these texts quickly because I know you can come back to them and meditate on them. I'm just pointing you to texts that show that we should pursue joy in God through suffering. And first, we'll get Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will all the more gladly there's the joy. Gladly boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. So now we have a glad contentment, a contented gladness. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Because when I am weak, then I am strong, meaning this gladness and contentment produce in me a soul strength that glorifies this power of Christ in me. So I'm arguing this gladness and this contentment 
are not a matter of indifference. You can't say, it doesn't matter whether I have this gladness. It doesn't matter whether I have this contentment. We ought to pursue this the way Paul experienced it. Here he is again, bearing testimony in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. That's his testimony. What should we do with it? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. My suffering flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This filling up doesn't mean that the sufferings of Christ, the afflictions of Christ were defective in their atoning merit and value. It means they happened 2,000 years ago, or in Paul's case, a decade ago, perhaps, and they were meant to be presented as a saving power in people's lives, and they can't see them. And Paul bears suffering, and in his own suffering, he presents the sufferings of Christ to people, and thus completes, fills up what they were designed to do, namely, become a visible manifestation of the glory and love of Christ. Here he begins to explain, how can this be? How can we rejoice in suffering? Through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Everybody gets that. We rejoice in hope. Oh, yes, yes. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute. Not everybody gets that. So we rejoice in hope, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can that be? Here's how it can be. Because knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is a way to see the effects of suffering that cause us to be able to rejoice in suffering. And there's the effect. Here's the way Peter talks about it. First Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal Christianity. But instead of being surprised, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Argument that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's a correlation between whether we rejoice now in sufferings and whether we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's argument number two. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. So not only will it result in glory at the end for you, there's a blessing even now. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There are reasons, if we understood them, there are reasons why we can and should rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings. Here's the way James put it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So when these painful trials come, rejoice, count it all joy. Here's the way they experienced it, actually, in conflict and imprisonment and beatings in Acts. 
Then they left the presence of the council after they'd beaten them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor, shame for the sake of the name. When was the last time we rejoiced that we were dishonored, rejoiced that we were shamed for the sake of Christ? That's what we should pursue. We should not go out of our way to be dishonored. But when love calls us to endure the shame and dishonor, we should pursue this in it. One more. Luke 6, this is Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Rejoice in that day, and then he ups the ante amazingly and leap for joy. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Yes. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great. Your reward is for enduring this with joy is great in heaven. For so their fathers did the prophets. Therefore, though we don't pursue suffering, yet when love calls for it, we should, should, it's our duty to pursue joy in God through the suffering that love calls for, to show that the treasure of God and the promises of reward in His presence, so this, this present experience of God as our treasure, this future fullness of God as our treasure after suffering, are more precious to us than all that we lose, whatever the cost, all that we lose through suffering. I'm arguing that is taught in those texts so that Christian hedonism therefore affirms it is the God-given duty of all people to pursue the fullest and longest pleasure, namely pleasure in God, which is found in His presence in fullness and at His right hand forevermore. Next time, one of the biggest arguments of all, namely, we just can't love people if we don't pursue the fullest joy in God.